We are in a new series, um, or if you've been here a while, a very old series. <laughs> so what we're doing today is restarting Matthew. So if you've been with us forever, you'll know that we've been in Matthew for a long time, and we're coming back to it. So uh, over the summer, we looked at what's known as the Olivet Discourse. That was chapter 24 and 25. That's the teaching of Jesus when he's on the Mount of Olives. They just call it the Olivet Discourse. And the major portion of that teaching and the major idea of that teaching is Jesus talking about the end times. Uh, eschatological is the big seminary word that just means end times. So that's what we finished whenever we were going through Matthew uh, during the summer, chapters 24 and 25. As we were cha- finished in chapter 25, uh, we saw that the, the good portion of 26, 27, 28 is all about these last couple of days of Jesus. And we thought, that's perfect. What we're going to do is take the resurrection, Matthew 28, place it right, right down on Easter, which is April 20th, work our way back until where we think we would need to start. And so we're starting today at Matthew 26. So in the fall, we did um, the Doctrine series. We did this, the Christmas series. We did the Spiritual Discipline series, getting ready for the new year. We did a short little two-week series on marriage. And now we're coming back here to Matthew chapter 26. And from here, it'll take us all the way as we're going to Easter. And so um, you can see here that we're in Matthew chapter 26. So I'm gonna, I want to read something really fast from Matthew chapter 26 to kind of set the tone. I'll pray and then we'll jump in. But um, notice with me uh, in, verse tw- in chapter 25, the very last verse, you can see that Jesus is ending that big eschatological teaching, that big Mount Olivet discourse, that big teaching on the end times where he says, and these will go away, talking about those who will not believe in Jesus. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. And so he finishes with that teaching. And Matthew, as he's finishing that teaching, says it right here in verse 1. And when Jesus had finished all of these teachings, all of those things about the end times, that big, huge portion of teaching, he said to his disciples. And so he makes this major transition from end times. This is how it's all going to go down. This is how the final things are going to happen. And he pulls it all the way back and he's sitting there with them. And he says, now, I want to talk to you about the next two days of my life. The next two days of my life are going to be where I'm about to, about to die. He gives what would be his, very, his fourth passion prediction, his fourth prediction of his death in the book of Matthew. is one in chapter 16, one in chapter 17, one in chapter 20. And then here's the fourth one right here in chapter 26. Um, and so he's trying to turn the tables. And Matthew, the gospel writer, as he's writing Matthew, sees 25 kind of ending and 26 to the end of the book as this last little section of... of A brand new kind of section, very different. And verses 1 and 2 really begin that big transition. That's why it was there on the video to to lead us into this last section where he looks at his disciples and he says, you know that after two days, so he's talking about from where he is on that particular day, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So what we're doing now is we're picking up Matthew and we're zooming down into that very last week of Jesus that he lived. Um, Jordan talked about, as we were singing there, uh, singing Hosanna. That was about what's known as the triumphal entry. That happens on a Sunday where Jesus enters into the city and everybody, you know, the palm branches, you know, that kind of thing. We go Sunday, we go Monday, and we go Tuesday. And we're right here on Tuesday. And in two more days, Thursday, at at night was when Jesus will be betrayed, the illegal trial, and he is eventually put on the cross late Thursday night, in, or beat it late Thursday night, put on the cross Friday morning early. And so that's, that's where we are in the narrative. And so he's looking at his 
and his disciples. And on the fourth time in the book of Matthew, it's recorded for us. He's going to give this fourth time where he's going to say, I am going to die. And it's, it's coming very soon now. He's going to actually give the win to his disciples in, in a little bit different kind of way as he's done previously. Now, what we're going to do here today is look at starting at chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. And so if you look kind of briefly with me in, in a broad way, as we look at through 1 through 16, you can see that there's three sections in chapters 1 through 16. The first section is Jesus kind of turning the tables or, or changing the, the whole conversation. And then you've got 3, 4, and 5. You've got people plotting to kill Jesus. And then and what seems to be a completely different kind of story, you've got chapter 6 through 13, um, verse 6 through 13, where you've got this woman anointing Jesus' feet with oil, I'm sorry, with with great perfume, and then what seems to be an entirely different section again in verses 14 through 16, Judas deciding in his mind that he's going to betray Jesus. And so it seems to be kind of three islands of, of story that seem, they don't seem to have anything in common. They actually do have something in common. So what we're going to do today is put those three sections together and try to figure out what's the common thread that's going on here. Whenever gospel writers write, or when anybody writes in the Bible, they place their sections intentionally. You know, they didn't have um, chapters and, and headings and verses. They just wrote. And as they wrote their material, they were trying to write this material in such a way so that you would see the common theme throughout. So um, we're going to look at that today. So today we're going to be in chapter 26, verse 1 through 16. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in looking at that section. Lord, I pray for us now as we uh, look at a different type of uh, teaching maybe than what we've looked at over the last six or seven months where most of the time before we've seen a lot of teaching when we talk about doctrines when we talk about marriage we talk about husband and wives we talk about spiritual disciplines we talk about concrete subjects of things that we can learn about know about and apply pretty directly but now God we're turning into um, just narrative passion narrative at that passion narrative being that we're looking at the last couple of days of your life. And while we're looking at how you were treated, really mistreated in the last couple of days of your life, we're seeing the big, broad story of you. And so while there's not necessarily direct takeaways where we can say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do because of that. We know as we look at the big, broad picture of the last days of your life, that as we see it, there should be a bubbling up an overwhelming sense of um, reality check for us as we look at your life to say, this story, this narrative, these last two days of Jesus' life are supposed to change the way I live. They're supposed to cause me to have deep affections for Jesus and that I would change the way I live in a holistic manner because of what he's done in these days. So I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see the story of you and how the last couple of days you were willing to be obedient to your Father to the point of death for our sake. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I say 24, what do you think? All right, let me, if I say Jack Bauer, what do you think, right? We're like, yes, Jack Bauer. I hear he's coming back. I don't know what, what they're... They, run out of storylines. I think he's going to like fight aliens or something this time. Uh, but anyway, when we, when we say Jack Bauer, 24, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, here's what I'm talking about. Here's what's going on. 
The premise of this story, of this show, is um, they take one day, 24 hours, and that's the entire season, right? So you've got 24 shows in one season, and what they do in the show is they try to make, as you watch it, it feel like an actual, only one hour has passed. So one show is from seven to eight. Um, They even include commercials. They're quite innovative. I don't know how they do it, but that's just driving time, driving, you know, of course, it only takes 15 minutes to get from across town in L.A., but uh, from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, that's one show, and that's what happened in that one hour in this particular day of Jack Bauer, and then 8 through 9 is the next show, and the next show is 9 to 10, and it just, ding, 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 you know, has that little cool sound, and the little phone, and it rings in CPU or CTU or whatever it's called, but you got this cool little story, right, where it's basically happening where they, they show an entire year, um, over a year of, of TV shows or season or whatever, is just covering 24 hours. And that's kind of what we're going to do. We're, so we're going to call it 48. We're going to call ours 48, and it's going to take us nine weeks. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to have 48. We're going to, and it's not going to be hour by hour, but we're going to, in the next nine weeks, Look at 48 hours. Now, you might think, 48 hours? I mean, that's just two days, Fudd. How are you going to take nine weeks or so to talk about two particular days? Here's how, and I want us to not miss this. Because in all of a collection of together, you know, put together of 48 hours, you know, maybe you've had a very important 48 hours. I've had an important 48 hours, etc. Of all of human history, the most important 48, and really, if you're including... The, the time where he goes, in, he goes into the grave until he's resurrected, 96, but we're just going to say 48 for this purpose. The, the most important 48 hours of human history is this. There is no more important 48 hours in all of human history than this. So, of course, that just makes sense then. It makes sense for the Christian to say, if this is the most important 48 hours of all of human history, I mean, two days, that's not very long, If this is the most important, then as Christians, we absolutely should plod slowly so that we can understand everything about this particular 48 hours. And that's what we're going to do as Remedy. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to look at this particular 48 hours. And if you look at verse 17, if you're you're an overachiever, you've already seen that verse 17 says, now on the first day, so there's the next day. So like today we're going to look at 24, and then then really the next eight weeks is just 24. So we'll have a true 24 starting next week. But I couldn't do that because of, you know, we do have the day before here today. So um, what we're doing then is looking at the next 48 hours of Jesus' life. We've zoomed in on Tuesday, and we're going to look at Tuesday into Thursday, and and really into Friday because it's Tuesday night. So the next 48 hours. Now, uh, as we're going through this particular section, chapters 26 and 27, and really 28, um, this is going to be passion narrative. Passion meaning the death of Jesus, narrative meaning story. So it's, it's different passion narrative whenever you're teaching passion narrative or preaching passion narrative. It's a little bit different than if we're going through one of the epistles or one of the letters. Generally, whenever I make an outline or whenever a text is kind of popping off the page into a, a natural little outline, those outlines are more didactic. They're more instructive. They're more teaching. But these particular passion outlines are not going to be that way. Instead, they're going to be more historically based. So in other words, this is what I'm saying. My outlines over the next six weeks, nine weeks, are likely to be more like this is the order in which the things happened, not these are the things that you're supposed to do. But as we're talking about the sequential history content and outline, 
I'm hoping and praying, Lord willing, as we're looking at, there will be some nice little gospel edifying applications that you can make as we're looking at the, the historical outline and the way things underline. Now, we are starting at 26.1. This is the most important 48 hours ever in human history. And now it's time for the drama to begin. Chapter 1, verse 1, starts out this way. This it's not bad to necessarily do a review, especially if you hadn't looked at it in eight months. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He starts that off in all of Matthew. Really, chapter 1, verse 1, he's been moving for the last 25 chapters in a powerful, gripping climax to bring us to this particular time. All of the, what he's written in the gospel is just like, healings that at all three years from ministry. Yeah, yeah, but let's get to the good part. Like, so it's, it's almost like that. He's, he's been building the entire time. We have reached, if you're on a trajectory, the climax of the story of the book of Matthew of 26 through 20, 27 and 28, and then it slowly goes down. Now, as we're looking at this particular verse, it's pretty interesting. Because remember, we just studied 24 and 25, the eschaton, the eschatology, the end times, the, how it's all going to go down. And one of the major highlights as we looked at that was the, one of the biggest verses that kind of jumped out in 24 and 25 was verse 31 in chapter 25, which says, When the Son of Man, so he's talking about the second coming when he comes down and how everybody in the entire world is going to know. It's not like when he drops down, just that one little location right there in a couple mile radius is going to find out. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to be all over the entire world that he knows. And it says in 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. So we have this picture of this amazing judge of Jesus. And then the contrast, D.A. Carson, as we see here, um, especially when you look at verses 3, 4, and 5, it says the chief priests and the elders, they're gathering together, they're trying to plot, they're trying to find a way to arrest Jesus. D.A. Carson sees this, this great contrast of 25 into 26, and he says, the coming pericope, and pericope just means set of verses, the coming pericope is a masterpiece of irony. The judge of the universe from 2531, the king Messiah, the glorious son of man, is now about to be judged by these high priests and elders and chief priests, which is just ironic that they think that they have the ability to judge Jesus whenever we've just seen this amazing picture of Jesus and how high up he is and that he is actually the judge of everyone. Now, um, we've entitled this particular sermon series, King Alone. It actually has a little double meaning in that when we say King Alone, uh, he is going to go through this last little part of his life virtually alone virtually alone, but also the other meaning is he is the king alone. No one else is the king. And we're going to see that as Matthew, and that's one of the things Matthew wants us to see. That's why we entitled this entire thing Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the one spoken of in the Old Testament that you've been familiar with if you know the Old Testament. This man is the, the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's the king alone. No one else is. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1, and we'll, we'll work our way through, um, and we'll see those, those three different sections and how there's a, there's a common thread through there. Let's look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. After two days, the Passover is coming. The Passover was the annual feast that the Israelites practiced where they were remembering the Exodus. If you're not familiar with the Exodus, Jack preached a sermon on December the 8th. I invite you to go listen to it where Moses let them out. But basically they were, they were slaves and they had an Exodus. They, they, were, they were exiled from, from uh, 
from, from not from Israel, from Egypt, and they came up and they, they, had, their own, they had their own land finally. And so Moses kind of led that. And so as they were led out and as they were saved, there was this exodus. And so they remembered, oh, we need to celebrate that fact that that happened, that God actually led us out of slavery. And so we're going to celebrate the Passover every year. So the Passover was something that happened every year about this particular time. And everybody celebrated it. And we know that we're about two days before the Passover. Because he says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. He's on Tuesday and he said, Thursday begins the Passover. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to prophetically predict that he is going to be the final Passover lamb. And in the Passover, right on Thursday, they began slaughtering the first lamb. And Jesus is saying that in two days, I'm going to actually be the final Passover lamb. Calvin says the ancient figure, which is the old practice of slaughtering the animal, the lamb, will give place to the only sacrifice of eternal redemption, will give way to Jesus becoming the once and final sacrifice of all time. He's going to be now the Passover. James Boyce says it was God's will that Jesus should be killed at the very moment the Passover lambs were being slain, signifying that he's actually the Passover lamb. He is the one that, because of his death, God will pass over our sin and not count it against us. He's going to die at the exact moment that the Passover lambs were being slain, indicating that Jesus indeed is, as John one twenty nine says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's looking at his disciples and he says, in two days, the Passover is coming. The Son of Man, talking about himself, this is a a key word that he uses, a phrase or a title he gives to himself, showing that he is the Messiah. And then he says this, this is is key right here in verse 2, will be delivered up to be crucified. He will be delivered up to be crucified. Now when we read delivered up, the language that's being used is that we're supposed to understand that Jesus is completely in charge here of his death. It is not according to anyone else. He is willingly delivering himself up as the volunteer Passover sacrifice. Calvin adds that he's doing this, he's, at, he's giving himself as the sacrifice in order to reconcile the entire world to his father. Now, it's important because the main theme that we're wanting to see here in verses 1 through 16, where it says Jesus will be delivered up to be crucified and that it's willing, the main thing that we're wanting to see through all this 1 through 16 is the sovereignty of God and the death of Jesus. What Matthew is wanting us to see and the way he places these stories and the why, why he places them, the where he places them is he wants to see the death of Jesus and the exact timing of it is not according to man's calculations. It's not according to man's plotting. It's not according to their little schemes. Instead, it's only according to God. God will decide when Jesus is going to give his life. Now, I'll show you how that, how that unfolds. Um, So what we're going to see in these three little sections are three contrasting preparations for the king's death. And we've got, in the first little section, we've got a group of people, they're preparing for the king's death in one particular way. Namely, they're trying to plot it out and make it happen. They're, They're heavily involved in trying to make it happen. Now, in the middle section, we've got a lady um, who's going to anoint Jesus. She is also preparing for the king's death, but she's not plotting. She's actually, as it says in verse 12, preparing him for burial. So we've got this example of how, how you're supposed to prepare for the king's death. And then on the third section where Judas is betraying, we're, we have this other idea where Jesus is bring, trying to bring about the king's death, but he's doing it in a, in a scheme, you know, bad example kind of way. So here we've got... Three contrasting preparations for the king's death. And I say contrasting because 
they're both in contrast to the middle one. The middle one is the right example, and the outside um, examples are the ones that we're not supposed to look at. Now, the reason why I can say that is because of the way Matthew has written this. These three sections are not in chronological order. It's not like, you know, first section happened, and then the next thing, section two happened, and the next thing, section three happened. Instead, section one happens, and then section three happens, and Matthew takes section two and wedges it in there, and it's like, ugh, I want to put this right here in the middle for a reason. I want it to stand in kind of contrast between these other two things. So the thing that we can start thinking then is, why did you do that? Why did you do that, Matthew? And when we get that, we're going to get there. When we do that, we're going to realize what's going on here. So we're looking at three contrasting preparations for the king's death. The first one that we're going to see here is in that first section. Verse 3, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered so we can have their, we had the religious leaders, the Israelites, the Pharisees, the ones that hated Jesus the whole time. Jesus kept making them look silly all the time. They're always trying to trap him. He always made them look silly. They're going and collude, colluding, collude, I don't know that word. They're getting together with whatever that word is. Y'all know what I'm saying. Like, I think it's colluding, colluding, uh, one of those. Uh, so they're getting together and they're having a, a, a gathering with Caiaphas. You can see the, the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And so he's not an Israelite. He's just the king there. And we've got both of them all together. And they're like, all right, this guy, Jesus, he is giving us a lot of trouble. So what we need to do is we need to come up with a plan. We're going to plot. And it actually says, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. That just means really, really sneaky, like sly and shifty, you know, really sneaky, and to kill him. So one thing about Caiaphas, this is interesting. In a, in a parallel text, in John chapter 11, John's telling us about this little meeting. And Matthew leaves this little detail out, but I think it's pretty interesting. If you look, you don't have to, but you can just listen if you want. In chapter 11 of John, at verse 50, they're talking about this little meeting that they're having. And this is what Caiaphas says as he's talking to them. Caiaphas says, um, Nor do you understand... Well, they're talking about, do we, do we get rid of him? Do we kill him? How do we do it? And Caiaphas says this, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It's better for you that one nation should die, or I'm sorry, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this screams irony. This screams, John is really wanting us to catch the irony here. Now, Caiaphas is a very shrewd politician, very shrewd. He, he stayed in um, as the high priest for almost 18 years. Most guys were like dethroned really fast. He stayed for a long time because he was really shrewd. He, he, he uh, knew how to play the game. And as he was playing the game, he, he tells them this thing, and it ends up being quite an amazing statement and actually very prophetic. And his shrewd political advice is that if one man, G- Jesus, if he dies... If we just kill this guy, even if he's innocent, all of y'all are going to get to live. That makes sense, right? So let's just go ahead and kill this guy. And as we kill him, the whole nation will get to live. But that sheer cynicism that he has actually backfires on him to be prophetically true. One man, Jesus, goes and dies for the nation. And then the whole nation, all who believe, will one day be saved. And ironically, Caiaphas is proven to be true in his pro- prophecy, but he's also proven not to be a high priest because the one that he kills is the actual high priest and Jesus becomes, and is for us, our high priest, among all other things. So Jesus has a boom, like Jesus juke on him and doesn't even realize that he got Jesus juke back a long time ago as he throws out this, 
this ridiculous little thing that he thinks is just kind of political advice will kill the one guy. And Jesus, not even there, Jesus jukes him. Like, that's how awesome Jesus is at this kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, so he's with Caiaphas, and they're plotting together in order to kill Jesus by death and arrest him. And they said, now this is, this is important. This particular verse 5 is going to highlight for us the sheer amazing sovereignty of God and saying, I decide when Jesus gives his life. Look at verse 5. But they said, all right, we want to kill him. We want to kill him, but, but not during the feast, which lasted about six days. So we're here on Tuesday. The feast starts on Thursday, and about six more days after that. So they're like, okay. And about eight days, that's when we want to do the killing. That's whenever it's time to, when, because when this uh, Passover is going on, thousands of people kind of descend on this one particular area to, to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate this festival. So lots more people are in town right now, and they knew that Jesus was a really, really popular figure with all the people. And they're like, okay, here's the deal. If we try to kill him right now while everybody's here, Jesus is so popular, they're going to try to kill us like big time. You can see that's highlighted for us in 21, right after the triumphal entry. Chapter 21, verse 46 says, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So they knew like, we're, we're scared to try to kill Jesus in front of everybody. And so what we're going to do is about eight days from now, whenever everybody's kind of clearing out, going back to their regular jobs, that's when we're going to go get him. That's when it's time. But notice what Jesus said. Verse 2, two days. They're saying, we're going to do eight days. And Jesus is saying, two days. I decide when I give my life, not you. So even in this first little one, where we have the three contrasting um, preparations, where we have the players, and this is, I, I alliterate, it's the only one, but you know, it all, it all worked out. The players, petty plotting in the palace. They're all over there. And you could really say, instead of petty, you could say sneaky, but that didn't have a P. Um, but the players, petty plotting in the palace. So you have them, as they're preparing for Christ's death, they're saying it's eight days from now. We want it to happen, no doubt. They're plotting, and they stand in contrast to this middle section. And then you've got the third section. Now, um, let's talk about this, this middle section, because... In verse 5, we know that there are many, 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 many people kind of descending into this area. Thousands upon thousands now are in the area for the Passover. And they're saying, eight days from now, we're going to do it. And Jesus says, in verse 2, two days is going to happen. Two days. And so we've got these particular people who think they're trying to plot to kill Jesus. They're preparing in the most wrong way. They're colluding together, or whatever the word is, to try to, to, try to kill Jesus. And then Matthew um, decides to say, well, in sequential order, in chronological order, this next section doesn't fit. But I, because I'm a gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to stick this in here, not according to chronology, but instead according to a theme. I am writing verses 1 through 16 because there's an overall theme I want people to see where this lady is lifted high as the example in contrast to the bookends of the bad example. So anybody watch Lost? Anytime I can talk about Lost in the sermon, it's awesome, awesome. If you're not missing, if you've never seen Lost, you're, you're missing the, like, the best show ever. So you probably should go get Netflix and watch Lost and then get rid of Netflix after that. But, um, so in Lost, if you ever watch it, whenever you're watching, so you're watching and, and Jack has to make this big decision. Jack's like the hero or Kate, who's not so much a hero. But you got all these people hurt and all of a sudden they have to make this decision. And then all of a sudden you hear this, this little sound. It goes, and what that means is flashback and all of a sudden you see jack as a child where he's like 
trying to have a conversation with his dad or he's getting beat up as a kid or Kate's setting somebody on fire. I don't know, whatever. Like something's happening. But every time before, there's this little sound. And you have this flashback, right? And then you see this little interaction of something in the past and then brings you back forward. And then you're, they're about to make the decision. You're like, oh, I get why they're making that decision because they had this flashback. And when you showed me what happened in his past, now I understand what's going on right here in this present little decision. Well, that's what Matthew is doing. Matthew, he's a big lost fan. And he decided, uh, what I'm going to do is just picture in your head right before you hear verse six, flashback. So right here at verse, verse six, it's Tuesday, but Matthew wants to say, Flashback Friday, all right? Uh, what I want you to do is think about four days ago. Is that right? So Tuesday, Monday, Sunday, fl- five days ago. Think five days ago, Flashback Friday. And I'm going to stick this little story in your mind because this particular story is going to make sense for you. It's going to make you understand the other two sections. We're going to put this, this story of this woman in here. And as you read this, there's a big theme I want you to understand. And as you understand this particular story, it's going to help us understand the other two. Verse 6. Um, Here it is. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with very expensive alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And let's stop here. Let's go ahead and stop and let's explain what's going on. She just basically anointed Jesus. Um, And we've already said in verse 12 that he has done it to prepare her for burial. So the second one, you can go ahead and put it on here. The, the second contrasting preparation for the king's death is the woman's beautiful, and I say beautiful because Jesus calls it beautiful. It's italicized right there in verse 10, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. So we've got the, the, the plotters in the palace, and now we've got the second one, which is the beautiful anointing. Now, uh, if you're familiar with the gospel writers, you're like, ah, I remember this, the woman anointing Jesus and wiping her, you know, his feet with her hair. That's actually another anointing. There are two anointings that happened to Jesus. The first one was in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. That was the first anointing that happened in his public ministry. This is the second anointing. Um, And so this particular anointing is a little bit different than that first one. Um, The second one is also recorded in Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. So um, Luke doesn't record this particular anointing. This is the second anointing. anointing. And the reason why, as I said, Matthew's placing it and where he's placing it is that there's a theme that he's wanting to emphasize. Um, This is actually happening two days before the triumphal entry. Remember the triumphal entry on Sunday? Two days before that, Jesus is over at Bethany. Now, if you remember, um, in John chapter 11, Jesus decided that he would wait a couple of days out of love, interesting language it says in John, to go raise Lazarus from the dead. Out of love, So he gets there finally, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and as they're in Bethany, he's there for a little bit longer. Two days before the the triumphal entry, he's at a party at this man Simon's house, and as he's at this party, Lazarus is there, Martha is there, you know, she's serving, that's all she knows how to do. Mary's there, they're all there. Um, And so the key question for us then is, all right, Jesus, um, not Jesus, Matthew, all right, Matthew, why, and and Mark, because Mark puts this place in the, puts this narrative in the exact same place in his book. But why did you decide to put this particular story right here between the plotting of the Pharisees and, and Caiaphas and the betrayal of Judas? Why did you do that? So let's look at this and we're going to be able to see why he placed it right where he was. Now, Jesus was at Bethany. Bethany was about two miles outside of Jerusalem, very close to where he was. He's at the, 
It's the hometown of Lazarus who had just been raised from the dead. Um, in verse 6, it says that he was at Bethany, the house of Simon the leper. Simon the leper. Now, this is, this is a side note. This is just a side kind of real quick teaching, but something I think is important. Simon the leper. Simon was a leper, not is a leper. If Simon is a leper, no one's up in Simon's house at a party, right? We ain't going up near Simon with his leprosy, right? So the key thing that we're trying, that, that's kind of at least implicitly being shown here is Simon was a leper who had been healed by Jesus. He had been transformed by Jesus. Now he's throwing parties. Now he's hosting parties and throwing them. Because he'd been transformed by Jesus, now he's throwing parties. Application for you, if you've been transformed by Jesus, if you've been forgiven for your sin, it's time to show gospel hospitality. Throw parties with gospel intentionality. Like, invite people you don't know to your house to spend time with you, to befriend them, to love them, to serve them, to tell them about Jesus. Back to the, back to the teaching. So Simon the leper, who was a leper, is having a party, invites everybody. It's a big block party. They're, they're playing Lecrae and everything. Like, it's, it's big. It's live. Um, and one woman came up um, to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as Jesus was reclining at the table. Um, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Jesus didn't get like ticked off. He's like, what are you doing? I'm eating. Like, it was actually a really good thing. Um, but interestingly enough, it says that it was expensive ointment. In John chapter 12, which is the parallel text for this, um, it says that it was pure nard. This is something that was likely imported from India and was quite expensive. If you're reading here, they actually tell us uh, where, in John chapter 12, it actually tells us. If you go to John chapter 12, I'm going to read this out loud, just a couple, fill in the holes because you're not going to get this from Matthew. Matthew leaves out a couple things. Six days before the Passover, which that's how we get the, the flashback. If, you, if you're wondering why Matthew stuck that in, all you got to do is go read John chapter 12 and say, six days before the Passover, Jesus was there in Bethany. Oh, okay. So if it's Tuesday, six days before that, that's Friday. So it was a flashback. Matthew didn't do it in chronological order. He did it in the theme. But anyway, back to this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner. They, Matthew, Martha, and and Lazarus kind of gave it, but we know that it was in Simon's house because Matthew tells us that. They gave a dinner. Martha served. She doesn't have to do anything else. Bless her heart. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. And look at this. Mary, therefore, took the pound of expensive ointment. So it was Mary. Mary took the pound of ointment made from pure nard. There it was. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, I know John says feet and Matthew says head. That's because likely it was all of it. Like John just remembers, oh, it's the feet. And Matthew was like, it was the head. And it was actually so much that it was all of it. So back to the story here. What we see here is that Jesus is anointed by um, Mary with, some, with something that's called pure nard. Very expensive. If you keep reading, verse 4 says that... Uh, Judas Iscariot, was, who's going to betray him, got all inflamed. He's like, why was this ointment not sold for, the, for uh, 300 denarii and given to the poor? All right, denarii means day's wage. So how big of a deal was this for Mary to anoint Jesus? When it says that it was expensive, um, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Basically, it means a year's worth of wages could have bought this. I don't know how much you make. But let's just say whatever you make in a whole year, like in an entire year, could have bought just that. And that's it. 30 grand, 40 grand, whatever you make. 
a whole year's worth of salary, and all you get is this that one thing. And Mary takes a year's worth of wages, something that's 30 grand, and breaks it and puts it all on Jesus at one time. Now, that's going to help us understand what happens here, right? In John 12, it says it was, it was Judas that got all upset. In Matthew, look what happens. Verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. So what does that mean? Was it Judas or the disciples? It was all of them. They all got indignant. Understandably, they had followed Jesus around. They saw they didn't even have a house. He didn't have a pillow. He had you know, nothing, right? He was poor. And so they're saying, according to your teachings... In their mind, they're thinking, according to the teachings that Jesus has been told us the whole time, we're supposed to use money to help the poor. Man, this could have been sold for, to help so many people. Consider it a year's worth of wages. Like, that could have helped so many people. And so, understandably, they're, they're thinking, why was this a waste? This was, this was quite a waste in their mind. Now, Jesus is going to help them see that this wasn't a waste. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. But let's, let's take a little sidestep here and think about this. Um, in Mark chapter 14, it says something about the way the woman uh, put this on Jesus. It says this. Um, I'm going to start in chapter 14, starting at verse 3. And while they were in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly. And look at this. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So she didn't kind of gingerly pop the top and sparsely start pouring it instead she just gave it all like right away she just went in full bore and said break it get it and just start pouring it all over jesus everywhere i'm not gonna sparsely stick stick it on him and kind of sprinkle it and save some for later i'm going to break it and breaking it it means the whole thing has to be used right now and as i break it i'm just going to put it all over jesus right now now we think that sounds a little strange but instead it's not strange this was her saying i am going to break this apart and give him everything that I have. Um, Ross, a, a commentator, says, this excerpt of this woman tells us to spare nothing in our service and devotion to Christ. And it sternly warns us against any thought or course of action that fails to recognize the supreme worth he must have in our lives. Every time we see Mary, this is interesting, every time we see Mary, this isn't Ross, this is just uh, James Boyce, every time we see Mary, she is at Jesus' feet learning from him and worshiping him. In Luke 10, she's at Jesus' feet while Martha is scurrying about making a meal. She's learning from him. In John 11, she's at his feet wiping um, his, his, I'm sorry, in John 11, she's at Jesus' feet weeping for her dead brother, Lazarus, who had just died. She she falls down at Jesus' feet and weeps at Jesus' feet before he raises Lazarus. And then in Matthew 26 and John 12, Mary again is at Jesus' feet, wiping with her hair, worshiping him with a costly sacrifice. Every time we see Mary, she's right where we all should be, at the feet of Jesus. She did not sparingly pour out little tidbits, but instead she broke the flask. She lavished love on him in a very physical, tangible, able-to-see kind of way. She lavished love on him. She lavished her love on Jesus in the most dense, heavy, deep, concentrated way that she could at that particular time. And this is our example and how we're supposed to love God with our lives. We're supposed to lavish our love on Jesus with everything that we can possibly have. It was so lavish, the love that she gave him. If you read in John chapter 12, it says this. Notice this. And I don't think this is just 
a side note that John says, but I said and think it's very instructive. In verse 3, it says, Mary took a pound of... Uh, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And watch this. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled with her worship. Your house should be filled with your worship. Our house, this house, as we worship together in this church, should be filled with with our worship. And as it's filled, as we walk into our, in our houses and we're speaking with our children, we're interacting with our spouse, we're trying not to yell at our, you know, roommate who won't do the dishes or whatever, our house should be filled with worship. The things that come out of our mouths should always be um, filled and sprinkled with worship for Jesus. Does your worship do this? Does it fill your whole house? Is it difficult for you to fill your house or this house with worship? If it is, it's understandable. It's completely understandable. We have difficult lives. But as we see Mary, difficult lives are lived most easily at the feet of Jesus. Difficult lives are lived most easily at the feet of Jesus. And when that happens, we can lavish our love on him and fill our house with worship. We can live, lavish our love on him and fill our house with worship. Spurgeon, talking about the lavish love that she poured onto his head, said, she poured the precious nard upon that dear head which was soon to be crowned with thorns. Soon to be crowned with thorns. Now, they're, they're mad. They think that it's wasting a lot of money. Verse 9, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And D.A. Carson rightly points out at this particular time, because the Passover is happening, there were thousands of more people in this particular area at the time. They're all coming for the Passover. Tons of people there. The poor was richly among them. I mean, no pun intended. The, the poor was, was quite um, among them. Lots of them were there. Just a few miles away from when this was happening. There were doubtless thousands of poor people. But Jesus doesn't say that this was wrong. The disciples are grumbling. Judas is grumbling. And by the way, Judas wasn't grumbling because of of the money uh, not being given to the poor. John actually tells us why Judas was grumbling. Verse 6, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he was like, I could have had 30 grand for me and I could have done whatever I wanted. So Judas didn't care about the poor. Um, So it was just fake. But notice this. Everybody's grumbling and the woman surely in this particular moment as she's come and she's just lavished love on Jesus. There she is rubbing her feet with her hair and everybody's grumbling. Surely right in that moment insecurity fills her heart. What's he going to say? I just expressed the deepest point of love that I could give to him. They're all saying I did wrong. They're closer to him than me. I mean I know him but not like them. In this moment of insecurity what's he going to say? Notice verse 10, but Jesus aware. That's just such a reassuring verse. Those three words, but Jesus aware. Whether Jesus heard the grumbling or he just used his, you know, his God powers where he can just read minds like he did in the other first anointing. Um, But Jesus aware. This is such a beautiful thing. Nothing, nothing, nothing gets past Jesus. And in this very vulnerable moment, she's wondering, Did I do the wrong thing? What's Jesus going to say? This is so awesome. Why do you trouble the woman? Why are you messing with her? 
Why are you saying what she did is wrong? What are you saying? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always, and this is his, this is his answer why. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And so, we stop and we say, poor people everywhere, the money could have been used for the poor. She puts out something that cost a year's full of wages. How could that have happened? Why would Jesus allow this happen? Because the costly anointing prepares Jesus for burial, prepares him for the cost, and only highlights for us the costly payment that would be made on the cross. Yes, it was very costly to anoint him, but even more costly for the payment that was made. And don't miss this. God owns everything. A year's full of wages isn't setting back God anything. It's not like, it's, oh, I'm strapped for catch now. I guess we got to not eat out in this, this month. I just, you know, let Mary give me a lot of money on perfume. So, you know, spirit, no eating out this month, all right? It's, no, God owns everything, right? He owns everything. This doesn't set him back anything. And he's able to highlight for us this costly anointing that prepares him to show us the costly payment that would be made on the cross. The costly payment that we made on the cross. So of course she did a beautiful thing. So how did she prepare for the king's death? It says it right there. She has prepared him for burial. She has prepared him for the cross. It seems like out of everybody in the room, even in the palace room and in this room, or even in another room, she's the only one that's like on the right page. She's the only one that maybe read verse two and is like, it's in two days. Uh, one comment, commentator said that this particular smell, or smells like this, this was very costly, these particular smells were very familiar with the people at the time. Whenever you would be walking by a house, if one of these smells waft out into the way, you smelled that and you say, oh, costly perfume. You usually put on dead bodies, not alive bodies. They're preparing for a death. And that's what's going on here. Anybody that's walking by, Look, can, can hear this party or at least smell the smell and say, somebody's about to die or somebody has died. That house right there is a house of death. And that's, that's what's going on here. This, this next couple chapters as we're turning the corner is certainly, as we've been studying through Matthew, taking a more darker turn. It's, it's the last couple days of Jesus where he was betrayed, where everybody left him, where he has this false um, accusation put on him where he has this false trial where he's beaten and here Jesus is saying she's preparing me for burial and then this crazy thing is said in verse 13 truly I say to you still defending her this is so great Jesus is so awesome wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will also be told in memory of her any place that the gospel is proclaimed, she's going to be remembered. Being fulfilled as we're talking this very morning. And in every time this scripture is read in John 12 or Matthew 26 or Mark 14, it's fulfilled again. Now, Matthew 
quotes Jesus right there, because you notice that wasn't in, in the other ones. Matthew quotes Jesus in there because he's finished that, with that one section. He's like, bad example in first half, bad example at the end, right here. She is the supreme example about how we all should prepare for the king's death. The way she prepared for the king's death was to give her entire life in response to worship. The way that we look back on this side of the cross, to look back at human, uh, the cross and say, What's our right response to the cross of Jesus? The same as her. Our entire life as worship. That's the only right response. Now, verse 13, Matthew is going to take this contrast of whenever the gospel is proclaimed, whenever talk about, people talk about the story of Jesus, this woman is lifted high. But whenever the gospel is explained, whenever the story of Jesus is talked about, this next guy is not. She's contra- the contrast between these two couldn't be any more stark. Verse 14 begins the story of Judas. The opposite way. Verse 14, which gives us our third contrast in preparation for the king's death. Judas's devious betraying. Then, so while Caiaphas and the boys, notice verse 14, then, while Caiaphas and the boys are over in the palace, trying to say it's after the Passover that we're going to do this, God's still going to make sure. This then is signifying it's going to happen in two days. Caiaphas and the boys, you think it's an eight? God's the one that's sovereignly in control, and when Jesus dies, it's going to happen in two days. The Passover, when it happens, is when Jesus is going to die, showing that Jesus is the Passover. God's going to make sure it's going to happen, and the way that he's going to make sure it's going to happen is he's going to cause Judas to make it happen in two days instead of eight. They're planning their little deal all of a sudden until Judas walks up to the palace and is like, hey, we can make this happen faster. Okay, so all of a sudden, all their little plotting and planning shift over to God's plans, even though they're the enemy of God. In verse 14, then one of the 12, this heightens, when he uses the phrase one of the 12, this heightens the horrific nature of this because this is one of Jesus' closest followers. One of the 12, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. The remembrance of Judas in contrast with verse 13 with Mary is horrific. She's lifted high as an example. Whenever the gospel is talked about, she will be remembered. And, and, and the example that we all should have, Judas, on the other hand, the opposite. This man, Judas, lived three whole years, day to day, literally slept with him in the same group of where they all slept every night for three whole years. He lived three years with the only perfect man that's ever lived, and he missed it. There's never been another perfect man besides Jesus. And this Judas lived every single day with him. This fact is the height of tragedy. It's the height of tragedy. Similarly, it would be tragic as you hear about Jesus day in, day out. As you hear about how worthy he is of your life to give him everything like Mary. To give him costly worship as you hear about who he is and what he's done and the cross and how it's paid our way, that we would not follow him with our whole life. That's the height of tragedy. If you spend any time in the church, don't let your life live out a tragedy like Judas. Judas stands as the contrasting example for us to not live selfishly for 
evil gain like Judas, to not live selfishly like the plotters for power, but instead to live selflessly like Mary, giving our very lives, as costly as our life may be, to give to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. It says this. Judas went to the plotters, and he said to him, went to the chief priests, joined the palace. It's in the palace, right in the broad daylight. They're not even trying to hide it. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? So all of a sudden, their plan for eight days is like, we've got an inroad here. We can make this thing happen earlier. I don't care if all the people are in town now. Judas has come to betray him. We can catch him at night. I mean, they didn't have YouTube. They, they weren't familiar with what Jesus looked like, right? That's why Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek. They had to know which one he was. We've got an inroad. We know who he is. We can make this happen even earlier now. Little do they know, verse 2, this is the plan of God. God is sovereign, completely sovereign. Notice this. What do you want? This is what they gave him. They paid him 30 pieces of silver. This is, I think, so beautiful. You're like, how's that beautiful? Let me explain to you. 30 pieces of silver is not an arbitrary amount chosen. This comes from the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 13. It is the price of compensation paid for a dead slave in the law. It's the price of compensation paid for a dead slave. Spurgeon, looking at this, says, Let us never undervalue him, Jesus, or forget the priceless preciousness of Jesus, who is reckoned as worth no more than a slave. The price to portray to betray Christ, the price was 30 pieces of silver. The price was the value of a dead slave. The value of a slave. Don't miss that. The price for Jesus is the value of a slave. What does Romans 6 say that we are? But slaves to sin. What Judas received in 30 pieces of silver, ironically, is very similar to what Jesus paid for you and I on the cross. In that Jesus paid the full compensation as that they were paid for, for freeing a slave, the price for a dead slave. Jesus paid the full compensation, the amount for a dead slave to sin according to the law, which is perfection. In order for us to receive eternal life, he paid the price for us not to be a dead slave to sin anymore, but instead for us to be an alive son or daughter. That's not counted as a slave to sin anymore, but instead now a slave to righteousness. Instead now forgiven. Instead now blameless. Instead now completely holy. This is the gospel. Whenever it says, wherever this gospel is to be proclaimed in the whole world, you might be saying, well, what gospel are we talking about? It says it there. What gospel are we going to be talking about? The gospel that's going to be proclaimed is the same one all the way back whenever Jesus stepped on the scene in Matthew 4, 17 and Matthew 4, 23. The gospel of repentance and trusting in him. This gospel of the kingdom that's preached as he's healing people and proclaiming people to repent and trust in Christ. And this is the same gospel that's coming through as we see this he paid the price of a slave the full compensation necessary in order for a slave to be paid for the slave is you and i 
We were slaves to sin. And everything has been paid for. And now we're no longer slaves, but we're sons and daughters. We're in the family of God. We're no longer slaves to sin. But for those of you that are believers in Jesus, you're holy, blameless, righteous. Judas was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. I mean, someone so close to him. Perhaps you felt that. Perhaps you've done that. As a son or daughter, that's forgiven. As a son or daughter, the pain and the anger that you feel towards the person that's betrayed you has been forgiven. And you've also been counted holy, meaning you have the ability to walk in holiness, the ability to walk in righteousness, the ability to interact with that person that's wronged you like Christ would interact. It says that from that moment, Jesus, Judas sought every opportunity to betray him. <laughs> and sovereignly, as God said in verse 2, it's going to happen in two days. We're looking at 48 hours, the most important 48 hours in human history. Ever. When we see this, how will we respond to this text? How will we prepare on this side of the cross for the cross? Will we be selfish and look out for our own gain? Like the plotters or like Judas? Or in response to what Christ has done on the cross for us. We give very costly worship our entire lives. I think in conclusion, I just want to read one line from one particular hymn that summarizes our right response. Isaac Watts says this, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time where we can come together, sing out praises, worship you, hear from your word, be reminded of the gospel, be challenged to give our very lives as costly as that might be. I pray for us as a church as we look at the last 48 hours of your life over the next nine weeks that we would see the great glorious gospel repeated over and over. As we look at all the pain that you endured, we would be reminded to, to stop and contemplate and remember what you've done and remember to do the hard work of repentance and saying, because you've done this, my only response then is my life. I pray for all my friends here as they consider their own lives. I pray that as they look at the life of Jesus and his cross, that they would not compartmentalize their life and give you pieces, but instead break the flask and lavish their love and worship on you their entire life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.